And as you are being seated, if you would please take out your copies of God's Word and follow along with me into the New Testament, to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. We'll be picking up yet another parable of Christ's. Just finished up the previous chapter. We looked at the prodigal son, or the prodigal father, as we found out, as it should have been titled. And now we're taking a look at the parable of the dishonest manager. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 1. This is Jesus speaking. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest man for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God money. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go once more to our, to our Savior and ask his blessing on our text today. Oh, Jesus, we do thank you for this word that's in front of us. It's a challenging word, so I pray that you would help us to understand it. Help me to preach it well and accurately, but I pray that your spirit would transform our hearts, for without you, nothing is possible. And with you, nothing is impossible. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before us today is considered to be one of the most difficult parables in Scripture. There are just so many questions that we could ask, and it seems at first reading so unclear in some places that it has led some commentators to say that this is simply an unedifying story that Jesus tells. And we can see some of their confusion. I mean, is Jesus saying that we should lie to get ahead? Is that the point of this story? Is Jesus teaching that all wealth is inherently bad since he calls it unrighteous wealth? What are we to make of all of this? 
Well, there's lots of questions that are pondered with this parable, and I think that's what makes it such a great one. As a teacher, one of the most wonderful things you can have from your students after you finish teaching is people thinking deeply about what you've said and asking questions about it. Well, why did you say it that way? Why did you use that word? It shows that they're trying to think about it. And I think that's what we're going to see here in this passage itself. Jesus is getting us to focus and think through this passage. Now, if you look at commentators, you will find a lot of different paths to basically the same end. We'll go a lot of different ways in how we can get to this, but this is the point that the passage is quite clear on. And that is, use your resources shrewdly for the kingdom of God, because your resources are actually God's resources. That's what this passage is teaching us today. We're going to break this down into two parts. And our two points you can see in your outlines been inserted into your bulletin. The first is that God calls us to a shrewd stewardship for eternity. God calls us to shrewd stewardship for eternity. And the second point is that we can only steward for one master. Can only steward for one master. So let's start as we take a look at this first section that God calls us to shrewd stewardship for eternity as Jesus begins our famous parable that he tells the disciples. Now, there are others that are listening into this story, namely the Pharisees. They pop up in verse 14. We'll look at them next week. But they're wanting to pipe in and criticize what Jesus is saying, which is kind of typical for the Pharisees. But he's speaking to the disciples in this moment. And this parable is about a steward who is about to be fired. He has been wasting his master's resources. In fact, the same word that he's used here for wasting is the same word that is used for the younger brother's usage of his father's wealth. Just throwing it away. Using it for no good. So the hammer is about to come down. Now, this wealthy man is apparently managing from a far distance. Because he has sent and told the manager that he can no longer be manager, but he hasn't just taken the books away. Just yet. He's still got a little bit of time. They had the Zoom call, he's closed the laptop, and now he's realized he's got to do something. So this steward takes a look at his resources. What does he have? Well, stewards in this time had the opportunity to make and enter into contracts with other people that would be binding on the master. That's why you have to be very careful whom you hire as a steward. So the steward realizes he has quite an edge at this moment. He's got all the books, he's got all the contracts, and contacts to everyone who owes him money. So here he gets a pretty clever, if immoral, idea. Perhaps this is why he's become a steward in the first place, because of this level of forward thinking. So what he's going to do is he's going to call in everyone who owes a debt to his master and rewrite the contract, renegotiate the terms of the mortgage. And his thought is they're going to be so grateful at the discounts he's going to cut these people that when he gets released from his employment, he will be able to go to each one and be received into their home one after the other. Basically couch surf for the rest of his life, going from person to person. And we can see why, because he, 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 he's been thinking about this because he doesn't want to dig ditches. He doesn't want to beg. So he's figured out a way to put people into his own debt. So how does he do it? Well, 
For most of us, when we look at 100 measures of oil or 100 measures of wheat, those don't really compute to us today. We don't really see what sort of a debt that this involves, nor cutting them, the first guy, a 50% discount, the next one, a 20% discount. We can't see how much he is revealing or how much he's reducing uh, their funds. What this first man would owe in this oil was about three years' salary for your average person. So you could imagine $150,000 debt that he owes in oil. The other man with his wheat measures could owe, it varies depending on who you ask, but the highest number that I found was eight to 10 years of salary that this, that this wheat man is in debt. So he has cut these people and saved them tens of thousands, some even hundreds of thousands of dollars. To put this in a modern context, imagine if you had been contacted by a representative from your mortgage lender and they said, I talked to the board and I figured out a way to cut your principal in half. We can keep your rate, nothing has to change, keep the same payments, but your principal is cut in half. Now, can you imagine if that same representative called you up about a, about a month later and said, I found myself suddenly unemployed. Do you mind if I stay at your home for a few weeks? Be mighty hard to say no, isn't it? Because he could come back. I've saved you. How much? Do you remember how much I saved you? And it would be an impossible call to get rid of. So he's quite clever. So now the master comes back. Verse 8, discovered what he's done, taken a look through his books and realized he's out quite a bit of money. Now, while the manager is obviously not happy about, or, or the rich man is not happy about how much his manager has cheated him out of, he at least has to give him credit for his cleverness. At least he found a way to skate away from the consequences of his wasteful spending. Now, it's that part of the story that Jesus wants us to focus on, not the lying to get out of the, or the cheating to get, to get our way out of problems. But it's the shrewdness that he wants us to take a look at. When we take a look at how people and this person in this story used his money, this was someone who has a very creative thinking. He sees a problem that's ahead for himself and will wheel and deal and do whatever it takes to think about how he can look out for himself, how he can figure his own way out of this problem. And it's that same level of almost desperately clever thinking that we should apply in our own resources for the kingdom of God. We've already been saved. We already owed a massive debt and ours has already been taken cleared of. Christ paid for our sins on the cross so our biggest problem is taken care of. So now the question is, how can we make sure everyone else has had that same problem taken care of? Or at least had the opportunity to hear how that's done. That's what Jesus wants us to imitate, is that shrewdness of thought. Jesus uses other expressions, like, for example, to be wise as serpents. He doesn't want us to be serpent-like in other characteristics, but just wants us to focus on that part. That's what he gets here. But now we get to verse 9, and this is where things can get a little confusing. I'll read it again. It says, And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, as near as I can tell, we've got three options. I'm going to present to you the three. See if you can find the common theme. Option one is that Jesus is being sarcastic here. 
not wrong to be sarcastic. Paul is sarcastic. God is writes, writes, writes in the scriptures, ergo, sarcasm is okay. But what Jesus might be saying, if he's being sarcastic, is saying, go ahead. Try to get ahead by using these unscrupulous methods that we've just covered in this parable. And you'll see that no matter how far you get ahead in your life, that money is going to fail you. And at the end of it all, there will still be eternal there will still be eternity to deal with in the end. And all those friends that you made by trying to get ahead, those friends aren't going to be able to welcome you into heaven, are they? So in essence, what Jesus would be teaching, the takeaway from that would be, think about eternity when you spend your money. And there will be people who will be blessed by it that will yield eternal rewards for you. That would be the one way that he would do it. Starting out with sarcasm, but, but the point of it being spend your money for the kingdom and it will go well with you. Option two is that Jesus is saying that all money is bad, but you can and should use it to make eternal friendships. In other words, put that bad money to good kingdom use and there will be people who will be blessed by it that will yield eternal rewards for you. In other words, spend your money for the kingdom and there will be eternal reward. Option three is that Jesus is making a contrast between worldly wealth and heavenly wealth. It's mentioned in verse 11. Hence the term unrighteous wealth, because it's just so much lesser than heavenly wealth. And that we should spend our worldly wealth on things for the kingdom. And with that heavenly wealth in mind, there will be people who will be blessed by it, yielding eternal rewards for you. And do you see, the, you see a common thread in here? No matter how we get to this point, Jesus is saying, use your money for the kingdom. Use those resources well. He can do it by being sarcastic and pointing out that taking the opposite approach is not going to get you anywhere. And that this is going to lead to your eternal downfall. Or we could say that money is awful, but there's a good redeeming use for it, namely the kingdom. Or we could say money is indifferent. It's much less than heavenly riches but it can still be used to build the kingdom. All of that gives three different ways of getting to the same point, that there is something larger, there's a larger purpose for our resources than just what the world spends it on or just what we might desire it to be done. And when he says in verse nine, I take option three personally. And when he says that when that fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings, the money that we use for the, for, the, for the kingdom, whether it's sponsoring a missionary, supporting the work of the local church, and there are those that hear about Jesus from your contributions to a, a radio ministry or to uh, a church or a missionary, there would be those that the Lord will have used your money to bring them to heaven, and that that would be a welcome to you in eternity. And that seems fairly clear, doesn't it? There's lots of different ways we can get there, but it seems pretty clear the point. And I think it's fascinating, perhaps a little ironic, that the parable that we have the hardest time understanding is the one that tells us what to do with our income. It's like, well, what does Jesus really mean when he's saying that? Does he really want us to use our resources for the kingdom of God? Try to find some loopholes here. Maybe Jesus has got something else in mind. I mean, we are very, very good as a human species at looking for loopholes. Remember, I came across one person that had found a store was running a promotion where if you spent the most money in that store over the course of a month, that they would give you free round-trip tickets to anywhere in the world. 
And the man had discovered that one of the items that you could buy at a store was a gift card of $25. So he bought a $25 gift card and then used that gift card to buy another gift card and went around and around and around throughout the month and got to go to Australia for $25. Another high school student... Another student had found a loophole in his school's dress code, which demanded a button-down shirt and tie. But he noticed that the school did not specify what type of button-down shirt it was. So he wore a Hawaiian shirt and a tie to school every day until the entire student body was doing it along with him. It was described that they looked like they were all Jimmy Buffett goes Mormon as they went to the high school. Ended up banning Hawaiian shirts a week later. But, but we're very good at these sorts of things. We're good at finding loopholes. We're good at analyzing language until we can find the way that it works the best for us. But no matter how we analyze this passage, there are no loopholes here. There is no portion of the scripture that we can point to that says that your resources are your own. In fact, what we find is quite the opposite. And that not only are these things not our own, but that we're being watched as to how we use them. Look what we see in verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. This is a principle that we can see that's applied across a vast spectrum of things. We don't trust people that won't take the time to deal with the details and we won't trust them with larger things. Like those two people that I mentioned found those loopholes, you wouldn't want to put them in charge of something important. This is they'll find their own ways around it. But when we find people that are faithful in the little things, we'll want them to do everything, don't we? Some of you are familiar with our local handyman. His name is Jeff Thomas. He's done some wonderful work for us at our house. And we remember watching him as he was going to paint a wall. For, for most of us, at least for myself, When I see that there's a wall to be painted, I open up the can, stick in the brush, and just start going on the wall. But not Jeff. Jeff would start out, and he would take off his glasses and look against the wall and see if he could find any bumps or imperfections in the drywall. He would go to those spots that he had found and would sand them down to make sure they were nice and even. And then when he couldn't see things anymore, he took off his gloves and would begin to run his hands across the wall, looking for anything else that his eyes couldn't see and sand those bits down. And only then would he get out the tape and the paint and put it to the wall. So when we found a leak in our roof by people that were unfaithful in small things, guess who we hired to fix the roof? It was Jeff. He was faithful in those little things, so we trusted him with the larger things. But this same scrutiny is applied to us as well. It's not just handymen that we've asked to fix our home, but it's God that's asked us to help him build his kingdom. He uses this same test of integrity in the way that we use our money. Isn't it interesting how we, uh, Jesus considers our income as a little thing? We don't think of it that way, do we? We think like, oh, well, you know, I've tithed or I've given to missionaries. It's like, I'm really doing good in the big things. Jesus sees that as a little thing. And if we're not faithful in something as insignificant as our earthly income. Why do we think we would be trusted with something larger? We hear all the time people that say that I want to do great things for God, want to impact this world for Christ. But 
They have no interest in making sure that their wife and children are shepherded. Or they have no interest in what their bank book looks like when it comes to what God has asked of it. It's those little things that make the difference. This isn't buying our way into God's favor, by the way. God can see that motive from a long way off. But what it is, is being faithful in what God has called us to do. That every job that Jesus asks us to do is important. Even if we consider it small, it doesn't mean it's small. Because those things are being watched too. And those that have that attitude of being faithful in the small things, a lot of times they will be granted greater and greater responsibilities and they won't even notice because it's just about being faithful with what they've been tasked to do and to, be, and to rejoice in the reward of greater service that he gives. Now, we'll move into our second point, and that is that we can only steward for one master. Look here in verse 12. It says, And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Now, why does Jesus phrase it this way? Don't you think it should be put the opposite way? That if you're not using your own stuff well, that you're not going to be trusted with other people's stuff? That's usually how it works in this world. If you're bad at managing your own money, people aren't going to ask you to manage theirs. Because if you won't do it well for yourself, why do you think you would do it well for other people? It doesn't seem like Jesus is making sense here. But indeed, he is saying something more. When he says here in verse 12, and if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? It brings us to mind that all that we have is another's. That's why I read Psalm 50 at the start in our Old Testament passage. God already owns all of this. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, which implies that you don't. And I don't. And that when we make our sacrifices, it's not God saying, whew, I'm glad you got that payment in. Do you see what bills are stacking up on my desk? That's not the approach God takes. Instead, he is inviting us to be a steward of his stuff. He's granted us our money, our houses, our kids, our friends, our health, our breath. Everything that we have is his. And all of that has been meant to be spent for God's kingdom. So we can see the argument of this passage, can't we? Step one, step two, step three. This first, that we see this parable that will tell us that we have resources to use, but we must use them shrewdly. If the rest of the world knows how to be clever, surely we can be clever too. The world can only look out for itself and works very, very hard at amassing things that cannot be held when we've been given the opportunity to invest in something that will last for eternity. Surely we can at least be as shrewd as they are. That's the first step. The second step should be shrewd with our resources. The second, they're not our resources. They're God's. He's given us the charge as to how to do that. But then the third point, we get to verse 13. 
says, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. But we try to do so hard anyway, right? It's like, yeah, we can kind of make that work. We can make the money work. We can serve the money Monday through, Monday through Saturday, and then we'll serve God on Sunday. We can, we, can, we can do it both. No, we can't. We can't serve two masters because their goals are opposite. To serve money is to serve another God. Because money is the closest thing that we have that we think would provide for us. Money we think gives us security. Money we think gives us health because we can buy it. Money we think gives us friends because we can purchase them. All these things we think, money is power. That's why the old saying goes, you've heard of the golden rule, haven't you? The one who has the gold makes the rules. That's how the world works. And we think it's so secure. But it isn't. Any of us who saw how America worked in 2020 showed us that our finances are not secure. Anyone who's looked at jobs reports or inflationary reports can tell us that this money is very, very volatile. It's the reason why Proverbs says that money has wings and it flies away. We have experienced that, haven't we? It's no real security. And to serve it has such harsh consequences. Money is a very unforgiving servant. It is a very unforgiving master. We've seen families that have worked so very hard to build a life that they can't even enjoy themselves, much less use for God's kingdom. We've seen money tear more things apart than it's ever put together. And all the while, here is God, a very benevolent master. Money didn't die on the cross for you. Money didn't forgive your sins, but Christ has. So what does this mean for our relationship with money? Does this mean that we need to divest ourselves of it, become money monks, a monastery monetary policy? No. The Lord has given us these resources and he expects us to use them. That's why he gives us verses like this. So what's the line? How do I know when I'm serving money instead of serving God? Well, I think this line comes to serve when we, well, there's a few different ways we can cross this line, really. The first are there are the obvious and doing illegal activities to get more of it, robbing banks, cheating on our taxes. We can imagine other creative ways and gaining money illicitly. But there are other really more subtle ways to serve money too. When money and the pursuit of it begins to push out things that are actually much better. We spend far more time going over the stock reports instead of having family devotions. When we are up late at night watching our portfolio jump up and down instead of reading our Bibles or spending time in prayer. We spend far more time in the Wall Street Journal than we do in the New Testament. It's when we're serving money. But it can get even subtler than that. Is that when you find your rest and your security in a certain number, 
This is something I'm guilty of, by the way. When I'll watch things go up and down and I'll be a little bit more panicky when it's down than when it's up. That's me serving money. And it doesn't give me anything. We say on our dollar bills that it's in God that we trust. But in that moment, I'm not not obeying that. It's in money that I trust. It's in money where I feel the security. When something pops up in my home or something that I feel is a situation that I'm scared of, the question is, can I pay for it? Can I get this out of it myself? Serving money. It's running to my money before I'm running to God. And it will fail every time. So what should we do when we find ourselves serving money again? When we pop back and forth. Unfortunately, I think this is a reality of the already and not yet. The right here in the middle of our own sanctification, going back and forth. What do we do when we find ourselves in the place of serving money? Well, the answer is, is to pull our eyes off of that and our eyes back on to Christ. And when we spend some time thinking about the riches that Christ has already purchased for us, the, the idea of trusting in money becomes laughable. When we say, okay, well, I've got my retirement sorted. It's like, great, that's going to last you how many more years? Can't take it with you. The old joke goes that some rich man died and took some bars of gold with him to heaven, and the angel looked at him and said, why'd you bring pavement with you? It's nothing. Because in the end, in eternity, that's what matters. We can be rich for as much as if we live a normal human lifespan, maybe 80, 90 years. But what's that going to matter when it comes to eternity? I remember, I'll close with this. I had a seminary professor who knew a man of great means. And what he wanted to do was to use it for the kingdom as much as he possibly could. And the older he got, the more he spent. So many churches got their initial building funds from him. So many seminaries were started by him. And in the end, he died completely penniless. He gave it all away. And people looked at him and said, it's just like, wow. You know, he got right to the end and he had nothing. And the seminary professor, my professor said, no, that man had everything at the end. Because he invested it in the kingdom. He put it where moths can't break it down or where thieves can't steal He put it into eternity. That's what he's called us to do. There is a world that is lost and is dying. A world that is headed for an eternity in hell. And we have the opportunity to invest in a kingdom where that doesn't have to happen. So what is it worth? Is there a number that we can put on it? No, that's between you and God. God has given each of us different gifts. You say, it's like, well, I don't have any money. It's like, well, you're, you're in good luck. The word that's actually translated money there should be translated mammon, which is resources. So if you don't have any money, you've got time, don't you? You've got a body, you've got family, you've got friends, you've got a home. All those things can be used for God's kingdom. What a blessing that that can be. It's a blessing that we can look into our own homes and say, this can go beyond just keeping rain off of my head. That this can go into hosting a Bible study for children. 
This can make an eternal impact far beyond what the mortgage says it's worth. That's the beautiful thing about following after Christ. It gives so much meaning into everything that we do. It changes these dollars into just numbers on a balance sheet into something that can translate into souls for eternity. That's such a gift. And honestly, we're robbing ourselves and we don't use it that way. When we become satisfied with using our money to get a gadget that's going to be obsolete in like 10 minutes or furniture that's going to be out of date in five years. Yes. Do we need furniture? Yes. Do we need things to get email? Of course. But when, it, when, but when life becomes about those things, that's where we get into trouble. That's where we serve money. That's where we ultimately enslave ourselves to it. So don't do that. Instead, go to the master who has stewarded his father's grace incredibly well. God has not reduced your debt. He's eliminated it. This is something that we have enormous gratitude for. We have come up to the steward, to Christ, and he has said, we've canceled your debt. So now come and follow me. That's an invitation. We have been called to stay in Christ's house because our debt has been forgiven. He's taken it away completely. So our takeaway from all this, we have been given resources by God. All of it is on loan but he has given us the opportunity to use it in the most significant enterprise of our entire life. That we have the opportunity to spend it for the kingdom, an expense that we will never, ever regret. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this challenging passage that you've given to us and how we use our money. I pray that this would not be something that we take pride in, like, well, I tithe, so I'm fine. But it's something that we take joy in. That we are almost in disbelief that we get to be a part of this with our little resources, our little houses, little cars, little incomes that can be used for such great things, for such heavenly riches to store. I pray that you would transform how we view that and that we would Follow this course with joy. So in Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen.